Every day, 130 Americans die from opioid overdose. Some of us are in invisible prisons today, even as we try to appear free. Sales of alcoholic beverages are up 55% compared to a year ago. I believe God's going to set you free. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Recovering Reality Podcast. I am extra excited today. I have a dear friend on from the state of Ohio, my friend Jody Salvo. Jody, how are you doing today? Doing well. I'm excited, first of all, just to see your face. Um, yeah. <laughs> but looking forward to having a conversation today. Yes, me too. It is. Uh, it's going to be good to catch up and. Uh, for those, for those of you that don't, don't know, Jody and I have done a, a lot of work together uh, on the prevention side, uh, the recovery side, oh gosh, in community stuff, yeah. in churches, in businesses. Yeah, we have, huh? <laughs> I'm starting to think about it, and I'm like, wow, we, we have done a lot of fun stuff. Um, like I said, though, Jody is a dear friend of me, my family. Jody is the director of the anti-drug coalition in Tuscarawas County and you also do a few other things which I couldn't remember go ahead what, what else are you involved in there in Ohio sounds good I actually work for Ohio Guides which is a large social service organization in Ohio so I direct their substance abuse prevention services and that's school-based prevention for the younger ages youth-led for like teenagers and then my my love is honestly community coalition. So um, the Tuscarawas County Community Coalition, but I also chair Ohio Statewide Coalition Association. I'm on the board of directors for Ohio's Prevention Professional. So all things prevention. How do yeah. we get ahead of something? Um, and and honestly, just help protect our young people and families and communities. That's awesome. And. Uh... Jody is very passionate about it. I was telling her on the phone the other day that I've done this in a few different states, a few different places, and uh, there, there just needs to be more Jody Salvos out there doing right. what she's doing. A lot of very good work that she does. Okay, well, let's uh, let's dive in. We both know this is a time right now, especially during COVID, where um, Chaos might be the right word. And not just with the COVID, but what I'm referring to when I mean chaos, as we both know, is mental health, addiction, yeah. the isolation, these different things are what I've caught myself saying recently. It's like kryptonite to people with mental health and uh, addiction issues. Um, I, I know a little bit of the detail about what you're seeing there, but is, is that real similar, uh, what's going on there as well? Oh, Absolutely. As you just said, and as you know, isolation has to be the worst thing that we can ever experience, especially when we're dealing with issues around mental health and addiction. Um, you know, I think accountability is just so important on how we live life in a more healthy way. And so you take away that ability to meet and connect and kind of really be real with each other. And then you put on financial stresses, anxieties, fears. I mean, just simply loss, loss of life. And then we can't mourn those in, in the ways that make sense to us. So, you know, it's just coming from every direction. Um, so yeah, it's bad here. Um, I think it's bad all over, but I know in our county, I, we had a 283% increase in overdose deaths in the first six months of 2020. So Oof. normally I'm 
prevention where usually my focus is staying in front of this, but this has been all hands on deck. It's how do we meet people where they're at? How do we meet communities? How do we just, you know, we work on reducing stigma all the time on getting right. services, but this is like, okay, guys, if I could paint big signs all over our communities and say, help is here, help is effective, you know, we need y'all to, uh, and people that have never needed services are needing them now. You know, I know I've had funk throughout this pandemic where you're just kind of doing life and then you're realizing, hmm, I don't feel right. You know what I mean? So helping people mm -hmm. identify how we're feeling, what's going on, and and that we all probably need help from time to time, you know, let alone if you have some really rough things going on. Absolutely. And you said it right. You know, isolation is just, we're, we're not, we weren't created isolated. We're yeah. supposed to be around each other, uh, talking, doing life, carrying each other's burdens, listening, praying, helping. It's just uh, isolation just creates so many more problems. And if there's a small problem, isolation just amplifies it and amplifies it. And so I'm sure you have been hard at work there. I know. Um, so for listeners that don't know, uh, I was in Ohio in that area for a little over two years. Not and, long uh, enough. Yeah. <laughs> I have so many dear friends from there. So many, so many good people that I miss that are just, just amazing. Um, and we moved down here about six months ago. And I remember right, right before we left a lot of that. And it was, uh, yeah, it's rough, but I did some research about what it looked like across the country. And I typed in, I, I found, I found an article and I typed in and, and it had something in the headlines with like overdoses are skyrocketing and mm -hmm. I couldn't find it. I wanted to go back and reference it. So I typed in overdoses skyrocketing, just thinking it would pop up. And the, the term skyrocket, the word skyrocketing popped up in so many articles, tons of, mm -hmm. of communities all across the country. And they put the statistics and the rates and it's, it's sad. It's sad, but um, we got our work cut out for us. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. Sure. Uh, you have never battled addiction. I have it's not. Never, but it's kind of like your whole life now is fighting to help people who have struggled or are struggling with it or helping them before they start to struggle with it. Tell, tell us a little bit, if you will, about... Um, what what provoked you to want to get involved in that when maybe you didn't don't really have a dog in the fight? I'll tell you what, Eric, I know you're a man of faith, and that's one of those connectors we have. Honestly, I I'm not, not just gonna say this is just kind of where God has placed me. I would hmm. say in earlier in my career, I'm a social worker by training. I love people, that's how I am wired. Um kind of fell into the position of substance use prevention. So initially I was doing a little bit in the schools, just providing education, skill development for our young people. And um, I think as I started working with the young people and working in the schools, I was able to really understand at a much deeper level what's really going into homes and communities. Um, and, and I saw it over time, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, what fourth graders were saying 
looked very different to what they've been saying the last four or five years. Oh, yeah. You know, with parents being incarcerated and domestic violence and, you know, the list goes on and on. And the more I started working with young people and really understanding, you know, what our young people were experiencing, the more my heart just kind of really started to understand addiction and persons struggling with addiction. And, and when you get into recovery and it just takes a little bit of time to get some personal stories and know people and know family members and understand the devastation that comes to go, you know, we can't sit here and not be part of the solution, you know? Um, and then I've just been blessed that we have some wonderful, um, prevention treatment providers here in Tuscarawas County and in the state that had invested a lot in training and evidence-based practices. And, you know, I also had the privilege of having a passion for the churches and kind of identifying, oh, we have this whole potential, um, we have this capacity that we can kind of pull in and businesses. And I think by nature, I'm a networker as a social worker trying to get at the very yeah, you're core good at of who it. I am. Connect, connect everyone with who they need to be connected to. <laughs> so I didn't actually have to have experience with substance use myself. And it, honestly, it's not in my family either, but I do know how to connect people. And, uh, and I just want to help people get healthy, get the help they need, protect our young people, have healthy families and communities. And, and now I'm all in. Yeah. Now you're so ingrained of it. There's no way out. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people ask like, how did you get in there? I'm like, yeah, I don't even know. Somehow God put me in the prevention department. And it took me a while before I kind of flipped. I used to call myself a social worker and I'm now all things substance use, prevention, retreatment, recovery, that kind of Honestly, it, it's part of who I am. It is, and you're doing a good job with it. Thanks. So what are, when it's not COVID, what are, yeah. what is, what is sort of an average day and week look like for you pertaining to the prevention side of it? And what's, what's the impact that you're okay. seeing it have? Okay. I will talk pre-COVID, and then we'll jump into COVID because this sure. life looks very different as it does for everybody. Prior to COVID, though, um, it really, my main mission and vision for the work I do is to prevent use substance use or delay the onset. So it really is working with our young people to make healthy decisions and I will tell you, education's the smallest component of us. It's pretty easy to educate our young people. We have great educational systems. They've been learning about addiction since they've been young, at least with tobacco and in science class, and they can kind of get that. Um, so there's this commitment to educating and skill building for our younger people. And when I say skill building, decision making, self-esteem, communication skills. But... I would say the easiest part of the solution to work with is our young people. The hardest is adults and communities. So my biggest work goes into how do we prepare adults? How do we prepare parents to be the protective factor our young people need? How to prepare community members 
that there might be young people in homes that were not going to be able to change their parents' lifestyle, situation, mindset. So how do we immobilize a community? How do we equip adults to care for, to protect our young people and our communities? So how do we limit access? How do we eliminate availability, availability to our young people? Um, often, you'll, if you lived in our community, we pump out at least four press releases a month on substance use prevention. How do parents have effective conversations? It's fascinating. We do a lot of focus groups. None of the work, all the work we do is based on local data and it's based off effective prevention techniques, strategies, evidence-based practices. So we do a lot of focus groups and then we'll do our work and our strategies stemming from that. But I'll do focus groups with our young people and they will say, my parents don't talk to me about substances. You know, just, it doesn't happen. And then I'll talk to the adults and they'll be like, oh yeah, we do. But their ideas of talking to their kids might be just don't do it. And that's not an effective conversation. So then there's this disconnect between our young people and our adults. Adults are thinking they're having this conversation. Young people are thinking they're not having it. So I feel our role is to help parents have effective conversations. So the kids are feeling their parents are having a voice and it's a meaningful voice. Um, I want to say this because it's what you're saying is very true. And, you know, I, when, when addiction grabbed a hold of my life would have been, so I'm 38 when I was 13. So I guess like 20, 25 years ago, 24, 25 years ago. And it was the same thing then. I mean, my parents, there's no drugs or alcohol in our house. My parents were, were at church. My parents are great, worked hard, six kids. Uh, there was no neglect, abuse, or, or anything like that. But there was just, uh, it, you know, when it would be brought up, it was just, well, usually I'd gotten in trouble. You know, that's usually how it got brought up. And because, and even then, there was even more lack of understanding how to talk about it, what addiction really is, what's really going on. And it was often just that. And so... On one side, the parents, exactly what you described it, they think that they're covering so much ground, saying exactly what needs to be said. Over here, it's like, you didn't even listen to me. We didn't even talk about this. And the, the disconnect, and it's a really good point you make because that was that was the issue. Again, no fault of my parents. They, they were doing a great job. But just, I was growing up in a completely different world. In a completely different world. And when you say that, I have to laugh because there's uh, often I speak at our local job and family services to court ordered parents who usually are court ordered because of substance use. But it's interesting, even where they're at in their use is so different than the substances our young people are faced with or how they initiate that, you know, it's hard for parents to have a conversation if they don't even understand what's going on in the community or what it looks like or how it looks like. Or that most likely, if their kid's over the age of 13, they've already been presented some sort of risky behavior around substances. And a lot of times it's that education of this is here, this is in our community, this is in your local schools, and I don't care how great your kid is, you know, 
the world is very different than you knew it. So, you know, sometimes I have parents and I, I hear your family, you know, they would have never thought their 13 year old was experimenting, experimenting with substance because that wasn't ever part of their generation or their experience. So they're not even thinking, hmm, we need to have these particular conversations. So helping parents know, you know, this can happen to any child in any life situation coming from any family, you know, and sometimes that's part of that. This is what you need to know, you know, age of initiation is probably around 12 to 13. And, you know, our kids are exposed to it via social media, music, from their peers, from older siblings, you know, just helping them understand. And this is what it looks like, you know, that simple Joel vaping device that, you know, initially adults didn't realize what's the big deal could have marijuana oil in there or anything else, you know, it could have, could have fentanyl in there. There's kids that are overdosing on those, those vape pens that have put uh, heroin or whatnot in there. It's, It's crazy. So it's helping parents understand, look, even if you don't think this is going on in your home or in your family, you need to become educated about this. What it looks like, is it in your community? Is it in your um, young person's school? You know, um, so you can have those conversations, not in a rough way, just to start dialoguing with your young person. It's very, very needed, especially how to have the conversation. Yeah. You know, the right way to talk about it and let them know you're you're there and you'll listen uh, yeah. and that it just is a completely different world even then when when it first started in my life to now i tell people like with as bad as my addiction was back when i was a teenager if i was out on the streets now i doubt i would be i doubt i would live yeah. just because of the fentanyl that's out there and so it's changing rapidly rapidly i appreciated when you just said about the conversation Partially, it's not a sit down and have a conversation. It's a constant conversation all the time. And it's not a lecture. It's a listening. It's asking questions. It's inquiring. It's taking teachable moments. When there's a newspaper article, when a kid gets expelled, when a celebrity ends up in rehab, those kind of conversations. How do you think they got there? You know, what do you think's going on? What, you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. one of those things, these conversations need to start when your child is in fourth and fifth grade. Yeah, because they're going to hear it from someone else if they don't hear it from you. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. I appreciate that. And the prevention side is, maybe doesn't often get talked about enough, but it is extremely important because if you can equip them before they see the battle, you're going to see more success. uh, And let me ask you this, so what kind of impact are you seeing, you know, what's some of the, the pluses and some of the, the good things that you're seeing? Obviously, it looks different now. Yeah. Um, but over the years, like, what's some of the impact, some of the pluses? On our last community survey, um, we have community surveys, youth and adult, every three years. We have consistently, from 2015 to 2018, saw a reduction in all youth substances. Wow. So I would say the impact is we're seeing it, even though... We see an adult increase. We have seen a young person decrease in all substances, minus the whole vaping thing that kind of took us off guard the last year or so. Um, But marijuana use was down. In the midst of medicinal recreational 
um, legalization in some states. Right. Alcohol consumption's down, prescription drug misuse. But even with some of those indicators being down, it doesn't mean that we've done the work, all the work that needs to, to happen. And I'll give you an example. We yeah. in Ohio have never had, at least in our area, a high prescription drug misuse from our young people. But yet, we've had some of the higher, I, I mean, number two in the nation on prescription um, drug addiction has been here in the state. But it's interesting. You know what? We're just now being mindful after focused groups and talking to our young people is kids are very quick, quick to misuse over-the-counter medications. Again, it's a conversation we have to have with adults. You know, anytime I'm uncomfortable, I take a Tylenol, I take an Advil. Instead of taking one every four hours, I take two or I take three or I take four. And we get very laissez-faire about how we manage over-the-counter medications. So our young people might not have access to prescription pain meds, but that philosophy, that behavior is being learned. Those mm -hmm. patterns are being developed. So then you get your first opioid prescription and you take one every three hours instead of every one every four and then two. And, and you can see there might be an intended purpose, but because we're not disciplined in here's the prescription, we need to understand it, we need to understand side effects, just everything about that. If, if you get very laid back about management of over-the-counter, it can lead into prescription drug. And in your case, I mean, it wasn't that you set out to abuse prescription pain medications. It was that you became addicted and they were prescribed for medical condition. You know, does that make sense? It does. It's a good point because you're saying that and I'm thinking back and I'm like, I had already um, been experimenting. I don't know if I ever experimented. I kind of just dove in at first from the start, but I had already been mischievous. And I remember, you know, during hell week football practice, by the end of the week, I'd be taking like, you know, I, I remember specifically my senior year one day, like the last week of hell week, I remember I took like 12 ibuprofen, not all at once but I was taking like four every three, four hours because your body yeah. just gets like, so, you know, I remember uh, in high school, I had, you know, obviously already been up to no good. I remember one time specifically, I'd looked in the medicine cabinet at my parents' house and I saw Benadryl and it said may cause drowsiness. So I took a bunch of them and I went to work and it, and it wasn't even enjoyable. I just got sick and dizzy at work and I had to leave. And it, it but it's that mindset of, I, you know, I don't feel right. I need a pill. I don't, sure. uh, this isn't going right. I need this to where that door is already open. And just like you said it, then maybe there's an injury. Then maybe, you know, yeah. they get given it at a party or something and boom, that mindset's already been ingrained and it's immediate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you were talking about that feeling, one of the other things that we really like to say to adults, alcohol, I mean, alcohol has done more damage across the United States than any of our other our drugs or substance of abuse. But this is a conversation we love to have with adults. Sometimes adults just feel alcohol is a rite of passage. You know, I can't tell you how often I'm at community bonfires, recreation opportunities, 
and adults are really okay if their young people are drinking in those situations. It's supervised, there's adult there, no young person's driving. Um, and it happens often, 18 year olds, 19 year olds. And we just really are that resounding gong that are saying, look, it is illegal for people, persons under the age of 21 to drink. And let me explain why. Their brains are it's not also developed. A drug. It is a drug, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. If your brain isn't developed till 24 and 25, and you give your body a substance of abuse, like that pain pill that made you feel better, or the alcohol or the marijuana, that young brain, if you ingest that and you are at all prime for addiction, your brain might take that and be alcohol, marijuana, whatever, and be like, oh, this is good. You know, you're going to get that dopamine hit that your brain's looking for. It's the answer. Absolutely. You know, life's rough. Your girlfriend, boyfriend broke up with you. Your parents are divorced. Whatever it is, you know, you're trying to, you know, get on the starting team. Life is just hard and stressful. You use that substance. It feels good. What are you going to do? You're going to try it again. And we tell adults, you know, you're priming your brain for addiction because it's not fully developed. So it can rewire that alcohol, marijuana, whatever it is that you're playing around with is what your brain starts looking for to feel good. You know, so what we say, if a young person waits till they're 21 and chooses to drink, unless they have a family history, most likely they're not going to have a problem with it. First of all, they've already learned how to recreate, to hang out, to deal with problems, you know what I mean, without substances. And then they can make an adult decision. But under, you know, you're playing with increasing your chance of addiction. And who wants that for young people, you know? So adults don't feel like you're being, you know, a mean ogre. You're being their parent and you're protecting them. And that's your job, you know? So even as an adult, if you're drinking alcohol, you're over the age of 21. But you can clearly say to your young person, it's illegal. I don't want you to drink because it might not go well for you. And I don't want that for you. So just helping parents understand, you know, that's an effective conversation to say to your young person, this is a potential consequence of underage drinking. And I don't want that for you, you know. Yeah, and I don't have the statistic here in front of me, but I've, I've read it many times, and maybe you know it, but the percentages of someone um, falling into alcoholism or struggling with, you know, drinking too much, binge drinking, whatever, um, if they drink in their teenage years or drink consistently to whatever regard under the age of 21 as to oppose when they start at 21 or after, yeah. the, the percentage is dramatic. I, I want to say it's like 60% more chance or something. I don't have the statistic in front of me. I've read and it. And that's a number I always throw out there and I'm, I'm not going to throw dramatic. it out right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I would have to look it up to get it exact, but it's, it's so true. And it, you know, it's such a, we just, we live in a world where it's all normalized. Yeah. It's just all, you know, marijuana. It's just becoming extremely normal. You know, it's, uh, alcohol already is and alcohol. I'll say this real quick. Maybe you don't know this. Um, Someone, so I read this recently. The word alcohol is an Arabic word. Uh, okay. al, al cool is how you would pronounce it. So the second half of that, ghoul, is where we get our English word for like ghouls and goblins. So it'd be like okay. a demon or like the evil spirit, you know? 
So al kul in Arabic is literally the definition of it is a flesh eating spirit. And that's why it's still called spirits in some places. Yeah. yeah and, and I have a friend, you, who, our friend, Neil Stoneman, who I, you, actually, I was with him when, when we first met, I came to a presentation you were doing. Um, he was a pharmacist for 25 years or something and really has a heart to see people that struggle. And he studied it. Um, all the just effects that the illicit drugs have on your body, ones that are prescribed or just the illegal ones on the street. And he said that alcohol is by far the most damaging to your body. I'm someone who's drinking alcoholically. You know, it's one thing, the person that can have a glass of wine a couple of nights a week, whatever. But someone that's drinking alcoholically, he said, flesh eating spirit, like that's exactly, it's, it's your heart, it's your kidneys, it's your uh, skin, it's your eyesight, it's your blood, it's everything in your whole body. It slowly eats it away. Uh, and it's, it's just become so normalized. And when you get that, just exactly the way you described it, when you, when you take a kid that has experienced any trauma mm-hmm. or high stress, and just the way you described it, all of a sudden they're stressed, their mind is this, it's, you know, going a mile a minute, the weight of the world's on them, and they take, you know, they drink some alcohol and it calms the storm a little bit. Well, boom, immediately you've just ingrained in your mind, that's the answer to calm the storm. And And we open the door to some real danger. Yeah. And we caution adults. The other thing that you can do with your young person is just be mindful that they're watching you. You know, they're listening to your words. If you come home from a bad day at work and say, can't wait to have a drink. It was just a bad day. It's fine to have that drink when you come home from work, but don't attach the words I'm drinking alcohol to deal with my bad day because that's what the kids are going to hear. Or when you're going out with your adult friends and you say, we're going out to get some drinks with so-and-so, you know, they're hearing recreation with alcohol. You can have a drink when you go out with your friends, but you don't need to attach recreation and celebration with alcohol for your young people because that's what will happen up here. That's good, simple stuff. Very simple. Yeah, nothing I'm going to say is brain science. But I will tell you, talk about COVID and alcohol. I mean, clearly we have been passionately working with trying to connect people, decrease stigma around getting help, highlighting where resources are in our community. But the other thing, the difference between prevention and the other treatment and recovery is we are not as much in an emergency situation normally is the rest of the continuum of care. So we're kind of the watchdogs that are trying to keep our community safe. And I will tell you, we had like three house bills go through our state house trying to do alcohol expansion during this COVID pandemic. So expansion. Meaning let's make laws that allow more alcohol to happen in our communities. Wow. So, you know, they were Now's under not the, the time for that. <laughs> not at all. The guise of this is COVID benefit and economic relief to our businesses. And I am all for supporting our businesses. But some of the house bills were to increase the hours of sale from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Or 24-hour sales, sales on weekends. Um, just stuff that if you really think through those, that... They were trying to make permanent laws around a temporary situation. 
if somebody's getting alcohol at three or four in the morning, you are positioning yourself for even more of an economic problem. You're talking DUIs, ambulances. You're talking all, nobody needs to go buy more alcohol, even so up we, to 2 a.m. <laughs> so part of the prevention world is going to the state house, testifying for the house and the Senate and just being a, you know, a noise within the state to say, you know, you need to understand people that are struggling with isolation, anxiety, depression, substance use, do not need social media advertising of alcohol. We do not need increased promotion of alcohol in our communities. We already know there's an uptick in sale that's significant around alcohol use. So we need to be very mindful that if someone's in recovery and they're sitting at home and the commercials are, are about alcohol and liquor, I mean, we're just feeding a fire that's, that's starting to burn. You know what I mean? Those embers are already hot. I, I do. It's, it's so interesting. Um, so Tropicana, orange uh-huh. juice, yeah. um, they just released a commercial like in the last couple of days. Um, of, a, of a particular celebrity, Gabriel Union, uh, okay. who's done some acting and is married to like a famous basketball player. And the commercial, it's orange juice. But the commercial is um, her going in the bathroom to hide from her family because she's stressed out to have a mimosa. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Tropicana's uh, Instagram page and you look at the comments on that video, the people are blasting them. People are like, this is so reckless and ridiculous to promote that someone's stressed out, hide from your family at home and cope with alcohol. There's like, just read through them. I'd say well over half the comments are people just ripping them apart. And I was like, I went and commented too. I was rather, I wasn't rude, but I went and commented too. But people, people were just ripping them apart. Cause, yeah. and, and, and I think they kind of needed to see it and hear it. You yeah. know, you can't. Yeah. In a time where people are struggling, you don't promote the answer as being something that's an actual problem. Right, right, right. It's, it's just crazy. So I, I would absolutely agree with you. Yeah. And even with, you know, in Congress, they're approving, the House is approving marijuana as recreational use. Again, you know, a lot of that's in the guise of helping the marijuana industry during COVID. and you know, just being mindful of, okay, if we allow recreational marijuana, does that change our community norms? Does that decrease the perception of harm to our young people around marijuana? And then if, if people that are listening understand marijuana, the potency continues to increase. We do not have research about potencies youth brains, addiction, you know, so you're thinking, do we want to open up another drug with a higher potency without long-term research into our communities when we're already struggling with drugs of abuse in our community and saying this is helpful, this, you know, this is less dangerous, this is less harmful. Um, So again, part of that prevention piece is just kind of keeping your eyes on you know, what is the push from a legislative standpoint, um, being mindful of perceptions of harm, community impact? You know, those are some of the things that we're very mindful of in the work we do. That's awesome. You mentioned the, the legalization thing. It's, um, 
we could probably do two or three whole podcasts uh, on yeah. that whole conversation and topic. But rather than me share my opinion, I'll just say you're right. It, it, you, you just, you, you got to think much bigger picture. Yeah. You can't just think, well, the business of it's good for the economy. Well, yeah. the business of a lot of things is good for the economy. Why isn't that getting pumped? Why isn't that getting pushed through too? Yeah. yeah. You know what? It really is taking a risk assessment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at the pros and cons of anything that we do, because when we step forward, when we open a Pandora's box, we're not going to shut it again. So, so, you know, I think we need to be very well informed of what science says about addiction, brain development before we say, let's, let's open up our communities, um, to more substance of, of abuse or the potential of abuse. And you know, no one drug stands alone, you know, where you find one, you're going to find them all. So, you know, we can't be foolish enough to say we're ushering just marijuana into our community because that's not going to be the case, you know? No, it's not. It's going to open the door for much other, um, many other drugs as well. Um, And it's going to increase mental health issues. Yeah, it's uh, all of it. Um, again, that's always a very big conversation. I've had, I go, I've, I've spoken to schools and, you know, mentioned how marijuana, you know, pretty much smoked it every day, all day for like most of 13 years. And they'll ask about the legalization of it. Kids in, I mean, like seventh grade. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, like, why are you concerned about it? You're in seventh grade. You're not going to be smoking it anyways. <laughs> but I, well, I, again, I was, they might be hearing an adult conversation, absolutely. you know, mm-hmm. And I'm just, I always say the same thing. I say, look, it's a really big conversation. You can't just, mm-hmm. you can't get one answer for it. Um, but I, I don't know. There's usually far more cons than there are pros. That's for sure. Yeah. But let me ask you this. Um, and of course, not to be critical, but looking at, looking at the progress you've made, the work you've done, wh- what do you think? could be improved upon or what would be your heart to like, man, if we could do this better, we would see yeah. more traction or more prevention. What, what do you think are some things that could be done more effectively? Yeah. The hard thing about prevention, it, it's really hard to see that things are working because if you're really preventing That's things, yeah. you're not seeing any outcome other than, the substance of abuse or concern or topic is not happening, but I do think there's a lot more we can do And every state's different. I know your listener group is very wide, but um, I think to have comprehensive plans in, in local communities and to a state level would be super helpful. And I always give the example of we spent a lot of money in the, as a nation targeted on tobacco prevention because we had the dollars from the tobacco industry um, when they were um, busted for um, killing know. people. Exactly. Okay, there you <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> so we had these dollars, so we were able to have comprehension, comprehensive efforts. And you know what? They worked. Our kids hate traditional tobacco because we had national campaigns, we had state campaigns, we had education all the way through the grades, but we don't have that on our other substances. When you really think about alcohol campaigns, prevention campaigns, marijuana, um, 
vaping we did, but again, because the industry got in trouble, did we see those efforts? I think we need to really look at what's effective. We need to look at school health programs and curriculums. We need to use what works. I mean, we're in a place now where we shouldn't just throw out a just say no type program. We know oh, what's yeah. effective. Right. And I think we need to commit dollars to that prevention end. I, you know, it's very inequitable prevention, treatment, recovery. And I get that in the middle of a opioid crisis, addiction, addiction crisis, we need to do what we need to do to save lives. But we need to stop being reactive and really put some front end funding and support. And I don't think that is the case right now, you know, and I get we've been in crisis for quite a few years now, but I do think we need to start advocating for funding changes um, at a federal and a state level just to ensure that we have solid, effective strategies from a federal state into a local community. And I think that would be very helpful. That's up. manpower, resources. Yeah. Absolutely. Marketing, you know, um, you know, it's funny you said if we're, you know, if we're, if we're doing our jobs well, there's no way to really track it or something. You said something long. It's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like a referee at a sports game. Yeah. If they do their job well, nobody even knows they're there. They do it yeah. bad. <laughs> if they do one bad call, the whole world knows you're there. Yeah. You know, they, they do a bad job, but if you're doing a good job, nobody really knows the referees are there. Yeah. It's kind of like, in some ways, what it is you're doing it would be would be difficult to track. Although you could, you know, staying in the same place for a long time, like you have, you'd be able to, you know, surveys and keeping track that you'd be able to see a decline, especially through the right. schools. But right. you've been able to see, um, yeah, that it's it's interesting because grassroots goes a long way, as we've known. We worked yeah, on some absolutely. stuff that was very grassroots that went a long ways. Yeah. Um, but you really, I just, I look at it kind of like this, you know, you want to, we're talking about pharmaceutical companies, um, billions and billions and billions of dollars. We're talking about the marijuana industry, alcohol. I mean, they have never and never ending, uh, the, the, the drug cartels, mm-hmm. they have a never ending supply of yeah. money. They, you know, if somebody doesn't do their job, there's someone waiting right behind them to do right. it. They may do it just as well or better. And there's just more money and more, it never ends. And at some point, just exactly the way you said it, there, there has, to, I just feel like the state states have to maybe zero in on that a little bit more and see, yeah. you know, we're up against, we're competing against an evil. We're fighting yeah. against an evil that has never ending money. Mm-hmm. And we, we think that, you know, a few thousand dollars is going to really fix the problem in the community. Well, it can go a long way. People use things correctly. I mean, I, I get all of that. I, I understand there's not, you know, an unlimited supply of funding that can even be grabbed a hold of. But I understand all that. But at some point, um, putting funding in those places is gonna it's gonna solve so many problems yeah. before they yeah, ever. Yeah, we definitely even start. need funding, no doubt about that. And you are right. The grassroots um, grass, grassroots work is super effective. But still, at the end of the day, I mean, campaigns, funding, presence media buys Mm -hmm. i mean there's a cost there it's not Um, free (laughs) it's not free 
Uh, the other thing I think that prevention is super helpful for um, in just dealing with addiction issues is we can kind of stand in that balance a little bit. There are some people that never get involved because they don't understand this issue. So when you're working with parents and young people before a problem happens, you can start these conversations of understanding, look, this can happen to anyone and this is what it looks like. I think a lot of times people are hesitant to get involved with something that seems so big and so overwhelming and so foreign to where they're at. And I think if that prevention piece can really work to tie all residents, all community members to understand we're all in this together, this whole thing Absolutely. called life, you know, everyone's going to have problems, issues, struggles. Um, and we just need to support each other. So let us help you understand, you know, how this issue can just really cause mass devastation, not to the person even that finds himself struggling with addiction, but to everyone that touches that person, you know, and, um, you know, we have the ability to protect, to support, to come alongside of other people and, and let us show you how to do that. And, and I think that's the other role of prevention that I still think we can do better. Um, but I think it's essential to just call all persons to accountability, you know, this is just who we are as human beings. You know, we are to love and support and protect and do life with each other. That's awesome. That's a very good answer. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot with this question. All right. Okay. As we uh, wrap up here, but um, obviously I lived there for a little over two years, know the area very well, have a heart for it. Love so many people there. So we'll keep this question specific to there. Um, but what, what is it, what would be your heart for what it is you want to see in that specific area? Um, we'll, we'll keep it specific to prevention. Um, cause that's, you know, what we're zeroing in on, but what, what is it, if things could look, um, how it is you would want them to look, let's say in the next one to three years kind of window, what, what would it, what would it start looking like? You know what? It's funny because you say in prevention, but I'm probably going to go more into treatment and recovery support. Awesome. Do it. I would love, love people to understand that there's no stigma here. You know, when people are struggling, when families are struggling, the addiction is usually a root cause. It really is. I mean, something has happened. And it could be just curiosity or simple initiation, but there's so much more going on. And we can, if we can get to a point where we're not blaming, we're not shaming, we're not hiding, but, but we can just be real as people, you know, and understand how easily, you know, we live in a world of quick fixes, you know, you try this and here's where you end up. I think in my ideal world, we would just understand this issue better and it would be a very comfortable conversation you know that we wouldn't have to do four press releases a month in addition to campaigns and all this for people just to get hey you know people are struggling we're all going to struggle there's resources available 
they're effective, they work, you know, there shouldn't be stigma on calling a counseling agency or going to a support group or whatever that is. So I guess in my ideal world is we could just educate the community enough and create enough awareness that there's not stigma, there's not shame, that we can just do life and support each other. And I think that would be it. I guess that would be it. You make it sound like it's just such a, a simple thing, but, but well, and, and it is, but the truth is, is if, if just, if just that happened anywhere, it is going to have a massive effective ripple effect. If people would just understand um, the compassion of it, the, the stigma of it, seek to understand rather than um, point fingers or, and a lot of times people do it unknowingly just because they don't, they don't get it. They don't know. It hasn't hit home for them yet, maybe. Um, but if if just that piece of compassion and understanding really took root in a community, how much more, how many more people would you see willing to jump in the fight? How many yeah. more people would you see having conversations with people struggling and that conversation changes their life almost what accidental, just because they yeah. listen? And yeah. it just that that would have such a powerful ripple effect on a community. And it would and, and just yeah. that, so to get the word out, educate on, you know, dropping the stigma and whatnot, it's kind of a full-time job, but how much money does it take to be patient, understanding, and have compassion with someone yeah. struggling? Yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't take a $2 million grant to do. Yeah. Maybe to get the word out and educate people, my, <laughs> my, but actually doing it wouldn't. I, I love yeah. that answer. I really do. We had a neat campaign that we did this fall where we had these life-size silhouettes. Did you hear about it? I, I, I saw pictures of it. I, yeah, I think. I we uh, had some some gentlemen that worked for woodworkers created these life-size silhouettes for us. And we picked 10 communities within our county. And each community received three silhouettes. One was black that signified the deaths in their city. One was gray, the overdoses in their community. And the yellow one that just says this, there is hope and then had a resource sign. So we had them all throughout the community and explaining a very visual campaign to our county that look, we are losing our community member right here in your community. Right. Um, and then I'm, I'm sure y'all had those long voting lines in Florida as well. Everywhere. We put the silhouettes right in the courthouse where only early voting um, place was so people were standing there for three hours a oh, day. I love that. So, they're so we would have the silhouettes, <laughs> and then they'd pull out information which talked about what we were experiencing, and here are the resources. Um, so we're trying to. I actually think it it really did make a difference because we had to get communities to agree for the silhouettes, and we've had mayors say, "Hey, can we leave them up? You know, um, can we provide a space?" So, you know, just helping people understand. These are lives lost. You know what I mean? Like we are losing children, wives, husband, you know what I mean? Siblings. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're working on that stigma piece. We're trying to get faces and people attached to numbers at this point. So not that we have any answers, but we are committed to helping per persons understand this issue. Committed, committed you are. Yes, and, and your team. Um, I, I love that too. Great team. A, you know our yes, team. Yes, great yes. team. They got a, 
a long line of people in in a very slow moving line and to put it right there where they all see it like oh it's that's awesome it's genius yeah <laughs> well jody i so appreciate you coming on oh it's great to see your face yours too i know you're busy with you know governors and senators and, and congressmen doing all you're doing um but uh i really really appreciate you coming on sharing your heart talking about this more you know sometimes just the conversation a couple of people having a conversation asking questions and people listening in um, sparks things in other people and uh, provokes them to get in the fight a little more understand yeah. a little better get in the fight a little more so and to really understand the it. levels of where we can engage because that's mm-hmm. we just need people at every single level on this issue we need people just reaching out in a very organic way, you know, see someone at the grocery store or Dollar General, whatever. And we also need leaders of communities to step in and create ordinances and, and policies that protect our communities. And we need everyone else to learn more and to have effective conversations and um, just, just protect young people families communities you know it's true protect is a good word educate yeah and just people getting educated and understanding better is you're yeah. arming them yeah it's true mm-hmm. protect and mobilizing our recovery community there is so much power in the recovery community you know it's true i tell people um i tell people all the time i believe that right now as we're speaking that some of the most creative, influential, smart, uh, gifted people, talented people talented. are currently have a needle in their arm. Mm-hmm. They currently are stuck in a bottle. They're currently at a rehab in jail. And believing in them before they'll believe in themselves. You know, you know how much time and energy it takes to stay high and drunk? Oh, it's I like two full-time jobs. It's crazy. <laughs> you take that. It's a skill set that is developed, for lack of a better way to say, you take that skill set, you take that motivation and drive, you fill it with a different spirit, and you you get them in a healthy lifestyle with healthy people. You just see some people who went from death's doorstep to thriving and influencing and doing so many powerful things. But it takes, you know, it takes a community, takes a group of people to love them into wholeness. It's true. So. Thank you, Jody, yeah, for what you're you. doing. Thank you for all you do. Make a difference. Absolutely. We have fun doing it. Yeah, we miss you here in Ohio. Yeah, well, I miss you guys too. I don't miss the weather. <laughs> I think we're getting a big one tomorrow. So I think yeah. I saw something about that, a foot or two or something crazy like yeah. that. Yeah. All right. Well, and for all of our listeners, thank you again. Um, you know, and if you're listening and you feel like there's somebody who you know who could really benefit from this, just send them the link. You never know how far it'll go for impacting people. So um, thank you guys again for joining us on the Recovering Reality Podcast. Jody, you are awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for joining us on the Recovering Reality Podcast. If you're looking for more recovery resources to help you in your journey, you can access our YouTube channel, a free ebook, our podcast and blogs through recoveringreality.com. You can also connect with us about recovery coaching, sober companionship, or interventions. And if you're looking for treatment for you or a loved one, 
You can reach out to a very well-respected treatment center called Banyan Treatment Centers at 866-942-8154.